Production. Recorded live. And there's Carl. Where? Uh, up at the top. Yeah, I'm on top tonight. Yep, you're on top tonight. I'm down here at it Constitutional. Uh, I see AIB and it's constitutional. Yeah, the AIB is my computer <laughs> and it constitutes my cell phone. <clears throat> okay. Um, I don't see Harvey on here. Carl, this is Adele Weiss. I'm here in case you're ready. Okay, where are you at on the board? Did you did you sign in as the guest? Yes. Okay, what number is your guest? No idea what the number is. We just put in the one in the pound. Okay, uh, Carl, he's either got to be in West Virginia or the straw man. I mean, uh, West Tennessee or Strawman? Because you only got three lines here. West Tennessee? West Tennessee? Yep, West Tennessee. Okay. 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 And you got RBCJR. Yeah, they just amused themselves. Uh, uh, that's me, uh, Richard Crane. Yes. Okay. I could, yeah, do you want me to mute? <clears throat> yeah, if you're not supposed to be on the call tonight, push yeah. your star eight. Star six. Yeah. Okay. Star eight or star six? I think star six. Star six is mute. If you will mute yourself out using star six then I won't have to do it for you. So you have that option if you're on the call. If we get too much background noise, I will move everybody out, and then I will bring the guests back in, hopefully. <clears throat> I'm having a problem with my voice today. We got a code front coming in. It's supposed to drop down to zero tomorrow. So hopefully the computer doesn't act up. All right. Um, well, I'm sure the room will fill up here periodically. Uh, I did invite the other two gentlemen that was on the call last week. Bob and Brent, which they are trying to assist our IRS case. Harold Stanley, uh, on his appeal in the Eighth Circuit. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and Adele, as you and the other gentleman might know there's a lot of people, probably thousands, that listen to our calls, but they call back in and listen to the recording. 
So you got to keep in mind that if the room doesn't fill up on a Tuesday, which we normally don't do Tuesday night calls, uh, then there will be a lot of people coming in afterwards. <clears throat> okay, let me try to put together a little pre-brief why we're having this call. And idea-wise, if I'm pronouncing that properly, is going to share with us his process and the things, speaking in layman's terms, the things that we the people have done across the water and over here trying to get remedy in these so-called IRS courts. Uh, Adele, if you're not aware, we've had a case for years uh, that they found Harold Stanley here and convicted him of willful failure to pay. However, he did do the Winston Shroud process with the acceptance for value, and of course they didn't like that. From my understanding, Winston Shroud is under indictment out in California, and he's probably going to prison if he doesn't pull a rabbit out of the hat. Most of our listeners do know that taxes are voluntary. We have the books. We have the ink on white paper. We filed exhibits, evidence in the Harold Stanley case, and also testified to a so-called federal judge that buddy with the prosecutor. Now, from my understanding, and correct me, your process involves not giving the Washington, D.C. District of Columbia Federal Tax Court jurisdiction. Okay. Uh just let me know when you're ready for me to start, and I'll kind of pick it up, and we'll go from there and up the right. question. Yeah, like. well, okay, I'm going to go ahead and give you the mic, and give us a little bit about your background, et cetera. You probably know what to do. Okay. And I'll turn the mic over to you. Okay. Well, good evening from Paris, France, and uh, my name is Adele Weiss. I was born in the... Constitutional Republic, back when the earth is cooling off, if you will. So that's a few years ago. But uh, the main thing for tonight's discussion is that jurisdiction and the revocation of election are the key topics. And as far as litigation goes, as well as the revocation of election, jurisdiction is primary. And I need to clarify, kind of as, I guess, as a way of disclaimer, that there's a lot of misunderstanding about the income tax code 
and the way it's created, the way it's structured, and because of your diverse audience background, which I'm not fully aware of, and I apologize, uh, I hopefully, if I repeat myself or emphasize some things, it will spur questions that we can address as we talk. So I'm going to keep the mic as long as you're wanting to continue with the process. Uh, this is one of my favorite subjects, and I can't imagine that it's evolved to that. But I started my undergraduate work in biochemistry, and I've got a Benjamin Franklin-type personality, and I've basically acquired a, a master's in constitutional tax law. And <laughs> don't ask me how that happened. It's just I've got a curiosity about a lot of different things. And I think that's part of the whole journey of life is that we expose ourselves to different fields of endeavor and find the ones that fit our particular niche. But having said that, um, I started about 20, 25 years ago. It, timed, it uh, arose pretty quickly, I guess, as you look back on it. But uh, the journey, I thought I could handle this within a five-year project uh, to understand it. And lo and behold, uh, it's taken me a lot longer than that. But my journey started a publication out of Baltimore, Strategic Investments, and that's where I got started with this trying to understand the income tax laws. Now, without going into a lot of background, um, I must state that FDR made a statement that really struck me years ago. He said that governments never do anything by accident. If the government does something, you can bet it was carefully planned. And this is very symbolic of what you see in the Internal Revenue Code. So in tonight's activity, I want you to know, first of all, that we are not anti-government at all. Uh, only those who are anti-government in the sense of taxes would be labeled as tax cheats, tax evaders, and tax protesters, and we're not that. Uh, we are ones who say basically that the federal income tax is perfectly legal and without question it's applicable, but it's only for one jurisdiction. And that jurisdiction is people refer to as the federal zone, Washington, D.C., and the U.S. territories. And once you understand that, you start seeing the fact that there are two jurisdictions that exist, and both of them are called the United States. And this was not by accident. It was what FDR was saying. It was well-planned, well-created, well-designed. And the purpose is obfuscation. They're trying to hide and situations where people don't fully understand what's being presented. So in tonight's discussion, uh, it may be a little bit of a paradigm shift for some people, but the idea is to give you some new information to think about. Our website is weissparis.com, and we encourage you to come on board and look at our information and do some study so that you can basically decide for yourself if this makes any sense or not. So with that uh, kind of a background, I must also emphasize as part of a disclaimer that we do not interfere with the obligation of those who are legal taxpayers. Now, I'm going to give you an outline of just who I've identified as legal taxpayers based on the Internal Revenue Code. First, and there's seven different groups. The first are those who work for the government, federal employees, federal officers, and elected federal officials. Without doubt, they are U.S. taxpayers. Those who are U.S. resident aliens, they're U.S. taxpayers. They come from a foreign country. And this is one of the key things that we'll talk about tonight in relation to the subject we're talking about with the revocation of election. All right, now, the other groups would be those who are statutory U.S. persons. at 7701A30. 
you will find the definition. It means individuals and legal fiction to kind of summarize it. And the term individually, you have to go to 5 U.S.C. 552A, A2 to find the definition. And it basically refers to statutory U.S. citizens and resident aliens. Uh, the next group would be those who derive income from the use of federal property, like treasury bonds, treasury bills. And you find this in the IRC at 861A. The next group would be those who basically are uh, U.S. citizens. Now, U.S. citizens are statutory in context. We have in our resource center on our webpage a section out of AMJUR, the American Journal of Jurisprudence. It's 3C AMJUR 2D, section 2689. And I'm sorry I'm going through this quickly, but if we need to repeat it, we can do that. But basically, a U.S. citizen is someone by birth in the federal territory become the property of the national government. So if you understand the context of the old monarchies in Europe that were commonplace uh, several centuries ago, this is exactly what the... All right. Now, the, the other group would be... Yeah, hold, hold on, hold on a minute, Adele. Ladies and gentlemen, push your star six, please. Push your star six, and I won't have to mute everybody. It will probably be better if you went ahead and just mute everybody right at the moment, just to keep from having interference on this, Carl. Okay. Uh, let me so see. Up and hit your for for the uh, computer and telephone, or for the telephone. Well, I thought I did it on the board. Yeah, you do. Up on the board, up here in the center, you sh you should have a telephone and like what looks like a computer. You click on it, right-click it over for mute. Okay. Hey, Dale, what, what did you come in at? West Tennessee. Uh, okay. Let me see here. One, two. I apologize for the interruption. No problem. Modern technology. <laughs> Okay. Or you, or you could just go down and, and yeah, just click on them and just just hit them and yeah, just, I got, just, I got it work. needed now. So okay. uh, yeah, go ahead, Adele. Okay. Um, basically, Carl, I also want to interject right now that I appreciate this opportunity to share this information with that group that you have put together and. Hopefully, we'll be able to maybe look at some of the litigation aspects later on in the discussion toward the end. But um, we were talking about U.S. taxpayers. There's seven different types. Uh, I'm going to go over them real quickly again. Federal workers, meaning employees, officers, or elected officials, U.S. resident aliens. And by the way, you can find the definition for U.S. resident aliens and their liability at 26 CFR 1.871-1A. And there's a reason for this and we'll go over that. Uh, those who derive income from the use of federal property under IRC 861A, that's a third group. 
statutory U.S. persons at IRC 7701A30, which identifies individuals and legal fictions, statutory legal fictions. Um, also, citizens are part of this group of U.S. taxpayers. And, of course, the definition is found only in 8 U.S.C. 1401A, A2, I believe it is, uh, number, you know, A2, and then Amger site that I gave earlier, 3C Amger 2D section 29, and it basically refers to people that were born in territory belonging to the national government, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Washington, D.C., or the U.S. territories, Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, and so forth. All right, the next group is the ones that are called non-resident alien individuals. Now, this is a real difficult term to get your mind around, and this is part of the paradigm shift that I alluded to earlier. And they're basically, to give you the short direction on this term and what it means, these are American nationals. And by American nationals, this is our created term so that we stop using the term U.S. citizen because in the Constitution, Everyone understands what a U.S. citizen is. They're born in the Constitutional Republic or they're naturalized there. Thus, that is what an American national is deferred to mean when we use that term. We're basically emulating what the Constitution is saying but using different wording in a non-statutory sense so that the IRS and others in that vein can't confuse people by using U.S. citizen from a statutory definition which again means those born in federal territory, and they become property and under the dominion and control of the government. So having said that, if a non-resident alien individual or a national, one from the Constitutional Republic, chooses to live in American Samoa or Puerto Rico, they become a U.S. taxpayer. Now the last group are non-resident alien individuals, American nationals, born in the Constitutional Republic again, uh, these are people who have to willfully, with full, from full disclosure, provided by the national government, allowing them to make a voluntary election to donate their assets to the national government as a gift or bequest. Now, you can find this term gift or bequest stated in the U.S. Department of Treasury's uh, statute at 31 U.S.C. 321 D1 and D2. The D is a little d. And basically there, and I'm giving you the boilerplate here, I'm not going to try to get real technical, but it, it basically says that a federal income tax is a gift or bequest to and for the use of the national government, the United States. So again, if you look at this properly, there are two jurisdictions, and those who are labeled as U.S. taxpayers fall under the federal zone, D.C. and U.S. territories. And if you look at the Constitutional Republic, even though the 16th Amendment is there, you have to go back to the Supreme Court decision in 1895, Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust, and it basically segregates uh, the two jurisdictions because the Constitution has an imperative necessity placed against the national government to use the rule of apportionment or a direct tax. And the Supreme Court declared the federal income tax as a direct tax, and if they abrogate or they don't use or they omit, disregard whatever adjective you would choose to use, the to the rule of apportionment, then it is an unconstitutional act on the part of the government. So that is why when they created the wording in the 
actual 16th Amendment omitted any reference to the rule of apportionment based on census and enumeration. So all this is fancy wording to say basically the federal income tax is limited to one jurisdiction, and therefore we have no argument, we at Weiss and Associates have no argument about the nature of the federal income tax being applicable only toward that jurisdiction because it does not impact the constitutional republic. And this was a Supreme Court decision, not Adele Weiss saying this, okay? Now, one of the other supporting documents that I would urge each listener to write their U.S. Senator, uh, maybe both of them <laughs> from your area, and request a clean, clear, legible copy. If you don't ask for a clean, clear, legible copy, you won't receive something that you can read. But you need to request a copy of the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment. Now, we have it on our resource center, but we need you to take the initiative to go get you a copy as well because you're going to start believing that what we've posted and what we has merit, and it's the foundation that we do. So this document is published in the Congressional Record of the United States Senate on pages 3344 to 3345, and it was written by President Taft at the time he was the POTUS, and it was June 16, 1909, and nothing has changed. So basically, Taft wrote this legislative intent for the 16th Amendment, and he admitted that the federal income tax and the government, through its effort to impose an income tax back in 1894, was declared to be constitutional if they didn't use the rule of apportionment. Number two, that they were denied and deprived of any power to impose an income tax upon the constitutional republic. At that time, there was not 50 states in the Union. Obviously, we have that today. Now, he goes through some other admissions, and the one that's most unique is he says, and I quote, I therefore recommend to both houses that, of Congress, if you will, to impose or levy an income tax upon the national government. Now, you have to work for the national government, identified as a U.S. taxpayer, to fall under that umbrella of that wording. So when you look at the intent of the legislation that was created and the actual legislation's result, the 16th Amendment, you don't get the clarity in the two of them together, along with the Pollock decision by the Supreme Court in 1895. So jurisdiction is a very important issue. And when you get into litigation issues, you must consider this as primary. Most of the Courts that you deal with uh, probably are Article I, uh, Territorial Tribunal Court. You can find this admission in uh, President Taft's, when he was Supreme Court Justice in Balzac versus people of Puerto Rico. You can look this up on the Internet. Balzac, people of Puerto Rico, and Puerto, Puerto Rico was spelled P-U-E-R-T-O-R-I-C-O. It was spelled differently than it is today. Well, okay, it's close, though. Anyway, you'll get the idea when you go look it up. But uh, you must realize that these territorial courts, the United States District Courts, U.S. Tax Courts, and so forth, are Article I Territorial Tribunal Courts. Their jurisdiction is limited only to the District of Columbia and, of course, U.S. territories. It has no direct uh, legislative impact or jurisdictional impact, I should say, toward the Constitutional Republic. I only know of two constitutional courts, would be district courts of the United States 
I think one is in Honolulu, and the other one is conveniently located clear across the New York City as the Court of International Trade. So those are the two courts that are constitutional. I don't really get into litigation issues because of the nature of the cost, but I would say if you're going to present anything to a court, you need to stay outside the court well. You need to address the court by asking its jurisdiction. If you challenge jurisdiction, rules of civil procedure, 12B1 and 12H3, I believe, you will find very clearly that the court can go no further until jurisdiction is settled. And if the court has no jurisdiction, it must dismiss the action. Okay, those are really important things for those that you're talking about tonight uh, prior to getting started. And that's about all I have to say on um, the issue of uh, litigation. Uh, let's see, there's some other things that I just want to call to your attention here. Uh, as we've talked about jurisdiction, I want that you understand that there's two different jurisdictions. They're both called the United States, and that leads to confusion. There are also the issues of the term citizen, which I've alluded to already. And when you look at the definitions from the Constitution, vis-a-vis -vis the structure that's listed in the American Journal of Jurisprudence and in a statute at 8 U.S.C. 1401, A2, I believe it is, um, you'll find very clearly that they're totally separate because the statutes only address statutory citizens. Now, if you start thinking of the IRC, the Internal Revenue Code, it has valid application only within a limited jurisdiction. It's only when implementing regulations are promulgated in the Federal Register do they extend into the Constitutional Republic. One of the things that comes about this whole structure, uh, the Constitution is, is basically being attacked and attacked deeply by a lot of different directions that have caused a lot of consternation in the lives of American nationals. But Anne Rand said it best. She said it cannot be repeated too often that the Constitution is a limitation on the government, not on private individuals, that it does not prescribe the conduct of private individuals, only the conduct of government. All right, And she continues to say that it is not a charter for government power, but a charter for the citizens' protections against the government. And this was a quote from her section, her book on man's rights. But uh, I want you to really get a flavor for this so that now that we can start talking about the revocation of election. Um, the revocation of election created as a result of a statute. The U.S. Congress wrote the statute. So it is something that you can entwine in this situation being a, quote, taxpayer, and you get these greetings and salutations periodically from the IRS, you have the option to leave the U.S. tax club. Now, you have to, with us, you have to meet our eight strict criteria. We have to have you tell us who you are because we do not, cannot, and will not interfere with the obligations of those who are statutory U.S. taxpayers. Uh, have your statement of agreement to our eight strict criteria. And you can find this under our revocation of elections section on our home page. Now, we also have a great YouTube video. It was one of the first ones we put out, but it goes into greater detail than what we can do here so that you can get a better panoramic view of why this is so powerful, why it is an option for every American to exercise, 
and we have solved a lot of these problems, not only by identifying the statute 6013G4, and the termination would be 6013G4A, and they address the term non-resident alien individual. So you have to really understand that, and we're going to emphasize, again, shortly a little bit more on that term. But the revocation of election basically is simply directed toward the government's authorization for Americans who have been dropped into this tax club, if you will, now, they use the term, the IRS uses the term voluntary election. You make a voluntary election, and unfortunately it's sub silencio because they don't tell you warning you're about to enter the magic kingdom where they take 30, 40, 50% of your income. But if you do that and you can stay out of it, if you stayed out of it, but most people have joined in the club, but fortunately there's an exit door. Now, the reason that there's an exit door it's because of the 13th Amendment. And if you think of the, con of the Constitution, the foundation for the Constitution is only applicable as law within the Constitutional Republic. In the District of Columbia, the federal zone, the Constitution is basically a historical document. It has no full force and effect of law. And this is why in the past, when I sat in some court hearings, I heard a judge talk to one individual, and I quote, he said, if you bring up the Constitution one more time, I will throw you under the jail and $5,000. Now, this was one of those situations that I said, there's something going on. And I said this to myself. He's telling you what the real story is. It's jurisdiction. So if you don't get anything out of this meeting tonight that we're having, understand that jurisdiction is primary. It is the foundation. And you have the federal rules of civil procedure to help you challenge the court and its jurisdiction. The revocation of election gets you out of the tax club permanently. If you read 6013G6, you will find that once you the election through our process that we've created, and by the way, we have roughly about 3,000 clients that have gone through this process over the last four and a half to five years, and we have really been very happy about this, but once we got our first one through, we knew we had something to be really excited about. Now. The reason that all of this is being discussed, we have a document from a federal appellate court back in 1922, and the case was Long versus Rasmussen. And Rasmussen back then was the equivalent of the IRS commissioner of today. And I quote on the second page, the revenue laws are a code or system in regulation of tax assessment and collection. They relate to taxpayers, not to non-taxpayers. I'll pause here and say, for the first time, you can see from a federal appellate court level that they're saying there are two groups in regard to the federal income tax issue. There are those who are taxpayers, they should and must file and pay, and there's legal, lawful, non-taxpayers who have no nexus with the government. Now, let me continue with this quote. It says the latter, meaning non-taxpayers, are without their, their scope. This is really important. No procedure is prescribed for non-taxpayers. This is saying that the IRS procedures, their statutes, their regulations, all of their forms that they have you fill out, those are identified as procedures. So no procedure is prescribed for non-taxpayers, and no attempt is made to annul any of their rights and remedies in due course of law. With them, the non-taxpayers, 
Congress does not assume to deal, and they are neither of the subject nor of the object of federal revenue laws, end quote. Again, Francis Rasmussen, federal appellate court case uh, back in 1922, and let's see if I can get you the actual site on this. We have it posted in our website. Uh, the site is 281F236. All right, so this is the foundation of what we use in dealing not only with the revocation of election, but we also use it when people have enforcement issues such as notice of deficiencies, notice of federal tax liens, and so forth. We handle those, and we deal directly with the U.S. tax court only by correspondence through the client. Um, let's see. I want to go into one other area, and then I'm going to open it up so we can have some conversation. Let's take a look at this term non-resident alien individual because it's it's very amorphous when you first hear it. You just can't kind of put your mind around it. You don't identify yourself as one who is a non-resident alien individual. But if you think you're non-resident to their jurisdiction and therefore you're alien to the legislative jurisdiction of Congress, which is D.C. and the U.S. territories. So it makes sense from that standpoint. Now, if you read the statute, and this is where it gets really interesting and somewhat humorous, if you can imagine that. At least it was for me. If you read the IRC 7701 as a little b, 1, and then capital B. So 7701, B1B, quote, an individual is a non-resident alien if such individual is neither a citizen of the United States Statutory, remember, it's statutory United States, nor a resident of the United States. So now we have something that's described, but guess what it says? It only what a non-resident alien is not. It doesn't state what a non-resident alien is. Let me read that quote again. An, an, an individual, a non-resident alien individual, is a not is one who is an individual is neither a citizen of the United States nor a resident. So if I told you my car, the color of my car is neither blue nor green, have I told you the color of my car? Absolutely not. I've only told you what it is not, what the color is. And that's the same thing this is. If you go to Black's Law Dictionary and look up the word definition, you will find that this statute does not meet the terms of a definition. And 7701 is the IRC statutes or definitions. Okay, the next thing to remember uh, from this is that a non-resident alien is neither uh, a U.S. citizen and resident alien. Now, they don't describe, in a sense, statutory versus non-statutory U.S. citizen. But everything that's written in a statute is only implicating a statutory nature. And a statutory U.S. citizen is that Amger site that I gave earlier, someone born in federal territory. You become subject and under, to and under the dominion and control of the national government because you're their property, because you were born in their territorial jurisdiction. Now, I'm going so fast, and I apologize for it, but I want to make sure we cover some of these points because it will need to be discussed in conversation shortly. Um, so all the territory that you see that we've talked about so far, jurisdiction, United States, and U.S. citizens, hopefully that's starting to come together. But I do need to emphasize the fact that you will find the definition of United States in a statutory definition 
at IRC 7408 little d. And it basically says the United States is the District of Columbia. And I paraphrase it. You can read the actual uh, statute when you go online. And I use all my references on Cornell University Law website to look these things up, by the way. Uh, but I'm not going to read all this. It can get too much. But I want to continue with this last aspect of non-resident aliens, and that is under the regulation 26 CFR 1.871-1A, and I quote, non-resident alien individuals, again, American nationals, those born in the Constitutional Republic or naturalized there, are taxable only on certain income from sources within the United States, again, the District of Columbia, and it says, and from sources without the United States, the District of Columbia, which is effectively connected for the taxable year with the conduct of your business. And you will find the definition for a trader business under IRC 7701A26 to mean the performance of the functions of a public office. The only source of public offices are within the District of Columbia in this context for fact. Okay. Now, there is that reference also as we were talking about the revocation of election. It says, in continuing this regulation, however, non-resident alien individuals may elect under 6013G or H to be treated, fancy polite word for taxed, as U.S. residents. Now, if you understand that a U.S. resident alien is indeed a U.S. taxpayer, and if you read this regulation, very clearly, that if they're taxing you not as an American national, but they're viewing you as a U.S. resident alien, then determine your income tax liability under Chapters 1, 5, and 24 of the IRC. So these are the subtleties, the wordsmithing that was used. This is a, goes back to what FDR said. Everything is well-planned, well-thought-out, and it really rings home this whole fact. Now, there may be some to say, well, how do you know that an American national is equivalent to a non-resident alien individual? And I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, you can continue with 26 CFR 1.871-1, uh, B as in boy, it's a little b, and the number four. And it deals with expatriation to avoid tax. And, it, and I'll quote you this, it's real short, and then we'll open this up for Q&A. It says expatriation to avoid tax rules and applicable, excuse me, for special rules applicable in determining the tax of a non-resident alien individual who has lost U.S. citizenship. Now, if you look at that 7701B1B statutory, meaning that a non-resident alien is one who is neither a U.S. citizen nor a resident alien, and they're saying this, if they were indeed saying that this is the same equivalent. How can you lose something that you never had? Because if you're a non-resident alien, they're saying that you're not a U.S. citizen. They forgot to include the word statutory. So this is such a powerful tool. If you get the gist of what I'm trying to say is that they're wordsmithing once again, and they're saying very clearly there's only one group of people in the world under the Constitution that can either expatriate, and when they expatriate, they lose their U.S. citizenship, and those are American nationals. But the government 
through the Congress who wrote the statutory laws and the regulations are saying that they had to obfuscate this so that people would not easily identify exactly who they were addressing. And they are addressing those who were born in the Constitutional Republic or naturalized there. I thank you. Uh, this has been a, a good overview. If you want more information on this revocation of election, we can indeed help you. Our email address is bilateral at gmx.com, and we ask you to review our resource center, look at our YouTube videos, and then we can move forward to helping you. And again, our website is weissparis.com. And I guess with that, uh, Carl, I'm going to open it back up to you to see what we need to do to help answer some more questions. Yeah, sure. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go to... Uh question and statement session as we have done for the uh last years we've been doing this and i de Adele, i want to concur with you uh i'm ron and i are on the same page with you uh why it's taken 20 years for us to hook up and connect is kind of like i uh uh, we presented ourselves. This is not about Adele, Rod, Carl, Mary, Sue. It's about we, the people, taking back control. Like Adele said, it's not our government people. We let this problem happen. But problems are opportunities. Now, the Harold Stanley case that we continue to work on, uh, that Harold got convicted of, we tried everything possible uh, in this so-called jurisdiction court up here in Missouri. Rod and I have filed, I'm more of a plaintiff guy. Uh, Rod started out 20 years ago as a defendant uh, person. But I've always looked at the court system as the prosecutor for the people. And we have, uh, you know, it would take more of the time we have on this call tonight to uh, discuss all them cases. But anyway, <clears throat> Rod, you want you want to make... Uh, you want to say anything before I open the call up? Uh, yes. Uh, part of what we're what he's talking about and what we are doing, ladies and gentlemen, my approach is a little bit different, but we are pulling congressional documentation uh, that comes off the floor of Congress that gets in and talks about taxes and who it applies to. In that 16th Amendment, we have the congressional records also that shows that they did they did it three times to get it correct on what it was talking about. You know, and when IRS comes in, they fail to disclose some of these court cases that it only dealt with the 16th Amendment only dealt with federal funds, not private funds, anything that dealt with federal funds. And they're going to disclose this in these courts. 
This is something that is very significant, that when you're dealing with that 16th Amendment, it only applies to anything that came from federal funding. Because if you had an investment and had federal bonds, federal stocks, that's all taxable. But if you were dealing with non-federal funding, it's not taxable. This is some information that we're pulling up on the one case that I'm working with with the, uh, one of my students here. And we filed paperwork right into the tax court right in Washington, D.C. And so far, the opposing side has not responded back at this point, because they're supposed to give us a temporary hearing. What it was was supposed to be a mediator that was supposed to come down within two weeks after we filed this paperwork and sit down and talk to us. Nobody's ever showed up. IRS has not contacted this gentleman again, not for a while. They haven't contacted him. But they had like an $80,000 lien against him. But when we filed this paperwork in, and we brought in all the congressional tent, and we brought in the Supreme Court, a lot of what he's, what he's just saying here, it has rattled your cage. Because we've gotten two different letters from two different congressmen on that 6331A. And the question came about to these two different congressmen is why is it that the IRS, whenever they drag us in and they do a levy of lien, why are they excluding 6331A? And Congress came back and made the statement is that that only applies to federal employees and public officials. It has nothing to do with the private sector. And if they're leaving it out, they are committing fraud. We get two letters from two different congressmen that have addressed that specific fact. You're correct. So, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot here to understand of what he's telling you. Go back and read. Go back and understand. But also go back in and understand congressional intent of what he's sitting here telling you. It's very important that you understand this. And most people don't want to take the time. Well, that's, that doesn't apply to us. That's their stuff. Well, you're right. It is their stuff. And that's exactly why you have to go back and use it. It is their stuff. It is their rules. It's their regulations of how they are to operate. It isn't for us. It's us to go back and do accountability on them. And that's what a lot of you are missing. You don't want to go back and do the accountability because you're looking at their statutes in the wrong perspective. It's their regulations of how they're supposed to function and how they're supposed to operate. And for that, I'll go ahead and let it go. And thanks, Carl. Go ahead. Uh, just one other comment, and those are excellent points you made, um, is that with the revocation of election, you can remove yourself from all this jurisdictional issue completely. You become, if you yeah. one who has no nexus with the national government, you don't have to deal with statutes and regulations. And starting from the year in which you implement this uh, revocation of election, it moves forward to all years in the future. Now, it does not work retroactively. So if you were dealing with an issue in 2012, you have to address that, and we can help you with any enforcement action. We've had uh, somewhere about 2,000 clients that we've addressed this issue by correspondence only with the U.S. Tax Court, and uh, we have won every single case. Now, I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you these are facts. Uh, reaching and touching my back and patting myself on the head is not what it's all about. 
The idea is that we're helping Americans resolve these issues jurisdictionally and to get this monkey off their back. But once you revoke the election, and that's the first step, you remove yourself from that point in time to every year in the future. All the money you work for that you legally earn is yours. There is no requirement for you to file and pay the federal income tax. And once you make that decision to leave the U.S. tax club, according to 6013G, you cannot re-enter the tax club. It's a permanent procedure. And we know who to send this document to. We know how to get this thing handled in the right way. And we're just really ebullient that we can see if you focus on all the litigation issues all the time, and sometimes that's required, but the idea is out of that involvement so that you can remove yourself from ever having to deal with that. And this is why it's so beneficial. Again, it's one of these things that when you do have to find yourself in the litigation, I would advocate that you consider to never enter that court well to avoid any admission of submission to that jurisdiction of that court. The moment that you submit to that jurisdiction, they've won because you are subject to their control and dominion. And anytime you bring up the Constitution or anything related to it, within that parameters of having submitted to that jurisdictional submission, uh, it makes it very difficult to come out with a win. And this is why so many people are being tattooed and uh, basically incarcerated. And that's not the path to take. The, the hopefully that you can solve a lot of these issues for people that have already done that. But the thing is, you can always challenge jurisdiction. And I would advocate that you do that. And you must get a, a clarification that you have not submitted to that jurisdiction somehow, some way. Inadvertently, sub silentio, uh, submitted to it. And that's how they win, is getting you to sub silentio, enter their jurisdiction. And then they try to basically lord it over you. So, um, boy, there's a lot going on here. And I am thrilled to be with your group tonight. It's just a real joy, even if it's well, in the morning. Um, yeah, hey, hey, now we we over here. I know you're in Paris. Over here, what Ron and I've been doing, we have used and we share it openly with people. Uh, all of our documents are free, and we have those in a Dropbox that's below our name on our emails that we send out. But we. I I read some of your documents. I breathed through them, didn't dissect them, but uh, the uh, resend document, what we've been using for years is we call it affidavit to resend or recession. Uh, I did mine approximately 20 years ago I went down and filed it in the miscellaneous file in the local uh, jurisdiction court at that time, got my recorder stamp on it, got my receipt, and I mailed it to the IRS. I have not filed a 1040. I haven't signed any documents in the last 20 years, and I haven't paid any income tax. Now, to say that, and along with what you've been teaching and some of the rest of us, we also have found out 
with more information that we've accumulated, according and also the little brown book that I refer to sometimes that we're not supposed to have, uh, that our income taxes, we the people's income taxes, is all voluntary. And we have congressional records of that. We got all kinds of stuff in that drop box. Um, I have referred uh, Bob and also somebody else here lately to go in there and pull the IRS information out because uh, there's some some additional information that I think probably you don't have access to or you've never seen. So uh, I thought I'd just throw that in. Uh, okay, people, we're going to open this up. If you will push your star eight, I think. Yeah. Yep. Uh, let me let me say something here a minute again with what you guys just brought up. That one of the things that we have learned here, uh, the moment that judge tells you, you cannot use the Constitution. Under the rules of evidence, whether it's the federal rules of evidence or state rules of evidence, under 402, it tells you, and I use this in federal court, against a judge. Under the rules of evidence, 402 and 501, it sits there and says, what is admissible? What is admissible is the federal constitution, or the constitution, the statutes, the rules, and Supreme Court decisions. The moment I cornered that judge and said, I said well, excuse me, rules of evidence says, what is admissible? Would you tell me what the word admissible means, Judge, when it says the Constitution is admissible and the statutes are admissible and the, and the rules are admissible and what Supreme Court decisions are? You know what? I cornered them on that. That put a stop to them coming back and saying you can't use the Constitution or you can't use the statutes. Because under their rules, they're already admissible. Therefore, you can use them, and you can corner a judge on this, and I have in D.C. Well, that's the excellent. Other that's excellent. Okay. okay. So, um, so again, going back, understanding their rules, uh, going back into legislation, here in 1925, the Classification Act, when they created that, that created what was known as federal jobs. That didn't create McDonald's or Burger King. That created the different jobs for the different agencies. The 1935 Registration Act, or the Federal Registration Act, and the 1935 National Industrial Recovery Act, these two created public jobs. And once you go back in and you understand the Classification Act of what it did in that Federal Registry and the National Industrial Recovery Act, that's when the taxes changed. But that's also when it got into that it only applied to those who work for the federal government because their jobs were being created 
through federal funding, through that federal money, for them to have had a job. And this is part of the historical background, again, in congressional records that we're throwing into the federal tax court when we're challenging them. Because we're not going into the United States District Court. We're not going into a judicial court. We're going into an administrative court. And that's what that United States Tax Court is in D.C. It is an administrative court, not judicial. So we're cornering them administratively. Well, the main thing is that this is why I referenced the issue of, or not the issue, but the the emphasis on the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment, President Taft. And it's a very clear admission that the government was basically without power or authority to impose an income tax except upon those who work for the national government and have a context of a nexus with the national government. So if you can remove yourself from that context, you don't have to spend your time is the way we're looking at it in dealing with all these subset of issues because most people struggle to just say, I've got a job, I've got family, you know, car payments to make and so forth, and they're burdened with a limited amount of time. And I applaud each and every one of the efforts that your group has made in striding to find solutions through litigation. It's just that litigation, from my experience, has been timely, emotionally draining, and and so impacts the lives for not just a day or years. So these are the things that with the revocation of election, we found solutions that are very pragmatic that get you out of that entanglement and get you moving in the right direction, that if you find yourself in a need for litigation, then your services that you provide to the clients that you serve are well within the, the course of due diligence and excellent service. So I applaud you and the effort you're doing there. It's just that litigation is a demanding prospect, and uh, I look at it from a pragmatic perspective. That's why I say what I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we're we're with you, Adele. We're we're oh, yeah. here, buddy. Uh, my background, I my dad taught me how to argue, and I could argue with a snake or a guinea pig or any, you know. I I enjoy being a private attorney general plaintiff and filing. We have filed on Department of Justice. Uh, We have Loretta Lynch under charges right now. Of course, she's getting ready to leave office. And we're going to go back up to D.C. here this spring and do a little bit more, see what Trump does. But I want damages for the people. We have approximately three cases right now that we have won judgments on that total out to over $24 million. And we can't get the damn things collected because the Department of Justice is sitting on the money. Well, may I make a a comment here? If you look at the Department of Treasury statute that I alluded to earlier, 31 U.S.C., Section 321, D1, and D2, they basically state, and I'm paraphrasing, that the federal income tax is a gift or bequest 
Now, this is analogous to the United Way, if you will, for a simpler illustration. Once you give to the government, as if you gave it to United Way, it is no longer your money. It is a donation that you have made. You cannot sue the government because they're saying, we have told you that it's a gift. It's a bequest that you have made to and for the use of the Department of Treasury, the national government, et cetera. So this is how they're avoiding this whole issue, is by yeah. this statute. Well, we're, I'll do some research on that one. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay, people, I'm going to bring you in. Uh, push your star eight. And we will go. Rod, do you have anything else? No, go ahead. Okay. Okay, here we go. R-B-C-J-R, you're on the call. R-B-C-J-R, do you have a question? Um, no, not really. Okay, I'm going to mute you back out. Okay, yeah. Just... Okay, next one is Texas, number two. You're unmuted. Hello? Go ahead. Hello? Yeah, my my question would be, because I know, I think it's under CFR 3402-1, where it says that you can terminate uh, your W-2, but when I tried to do that, they wouldn't allow me to do so. And if it's a, if it's a voluntary gift, then how do you, you know, uh, not volunteer any longer? If they're not if they're not allowing you to well you're dealing with a statute number one and where are statutes applicable in the federal zone the key is to get yourself out of that nexus with the federal zone this is why mm -hmm. the revocation of election allows you to exit the US tax club it is an option provided to you by the US Congress because everybody in the government takes an oath of office to protect and to defend the Constitution a violation of their oath of office can basically impact them negatively with up to 20 years in jail and a huge fine and other issues that I'm not going to go into. But the, the key is to understand that once you leave the U.S. tax club, you have removed yourself from it. Now, there may be private sector employers that are uneducated, they're not aware, and they would challenge you under a W-2 format. But if you have a 1099 or if you're self-employed, it's far simpler. Because if you have a W-2, it is imperative that you learn to articulate or communicate this information. And you have to do it with somebody with almost like a spoon feeding a child pablum. You have to do it little bits at a time because you're giving them a challenge to their status quo. And any time a status quo is changed, there is immediate resistance and denial and so forth but eventually they come around. So it takes time to educate these people. We have YouTube videos, how to deal with the employer on withholding issues and so forth, but we're not enforcement. We can't make people abide by the law. We can only show them what the law is. But that's now, one solution that you might consider. Now, can you sue your employer for not uh, abiding by the law? Mm, well, you could 
try that. We have a document for withholding purposes. I guess it's a subject we're talking about now. And it's uh, 5.14.10.2.2 under the Internal Revenue Manual. It basically says that private sector employers are required to withhold, that only those who are using can request their employer to actually withhold. And if you get that document, it was for the year, it was, there's two of them that we have up there. One is for 2004. That's the most descriptive. They've shortened the version down in the 2015 version because too much information is being let out. And the IRS habitually wow. does this because they want to obfuscate what's really going on. Mm-hmm. But that's a good question. If you stay with the statute laws, you're going to find out you're entangled constantly with it. But the W-2 right. is, the, is the tool that they use routinely, and we do have some tools there on our YouTube videos to help you. Now, what is the name of your website and your YouTube site? Uh, it's all in one. It's Weiss Paris, W-E-I-S-S Paris, like the city in France, Weiss Paris. Okay. And once you go there, you'll see the homepage with the Statue of Liberty. And we have in the upper right corner a little tab that says Resource Center. And we encourage you to look at our YouTube videos there, read our documentation. That basically, I'm I'm very much a pragmatist. I want something short and sweet. We don't give you 5,000 pages to read. We give you as short a venue of reading material. In other words, we cut to the chase. We give you the meat of what you need to see so that you don't have to spend hours hours reading. And we do have... Go ahead. I have one more question, and I'll let you go. I, I don't mean to take up all your time. Now, let's say I go through this process and I get out of, you know, the, your process that you're talking about. Now, am I able to work on a job again, or do do I need to do my own thing from that point on? No, you can find employment uh, wherever you choose. It's just that in in the times that we find ourselves in, in this modern-day society, governments are trying to control people more and more. And that's what I like about France. The people of France will stand up and scream at the government, and the government is very much afraid of the people. But in the U.S., it's just the opposite. Most Americans are fearful of the government. And I guess that with that mindset, if you can become a 1099 subcontract employee or be self-employed, you're far better off in this issue. Otherwise, you have to deal with the W-2. You have to train and educate your private sector employer so that they understand the law. But you will meet immediate resistance has been our experience because it's not so much they want to violate the law if they don't know the law because guess what? Everybody's been doing this for almost 100 years, so why now is what they're thinking. How can this possibly be? They don't understand what they don't know. And I guess that's one of the things that struck me about Mark Twain, and if, <laughs> he made a comment that just almost knocked me over when I first read it, because he said, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that is just not so. So this is the problem with employers. They think they know it, but what they know is not correct. So the, the employer is sincere, but they're sincerely wrong, because they don't know the law. And because if you go to attorneys, who is their first duty to? To you, the American? Uh, uh, to the court. To the court. Thank you very much. Absolutely right. 
They're an officer of the court, and they will lose their privileged opportunity to make a livelihood if they risk that as an insult to the court. So they're yeah. not your, you're about number four down the list if you're dealing with an attorney as far as importance as a client. Yeah, because I, I had an experience with the IRS here recently, and they garnished, they garnished some of my wages. But like the young the man was saying earlier, when they sent me the information, all of it wasn't there. They, 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 that was actually fraud because part A was not even there. And when I explained it to the IRS agent that, hey, man, I'm not an employee of the United States, and I asked him a, a specific question. I said, well, by me being on my job, am I considered a instrumentality or an agent of the United States just by having his job? And he got real quiet, and he wouldn't even answer the question. Yeah. <laughs> so silence is a species of conduct, and that conduct equates to a fraud if it's intentionally misleading, and that's exactly what they're doing. Good. Wow. Let's let's move on here. Well, thank you. Um, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Your question. Okay. okay. Uh, well, something that I've used. I now through the years and of course in other employment. I'm sixty one now, so I'm you know, I'm on retirement uh, side, but I've used the contract labor and uh when I grew up and I found out, well hell, you know, I'm just gonna work for employers that do contract labor and, you know, hell with the taxes. So that's that's an option uh, that people use sometimes over here in the U.S. Okay, guest number 35, I'm going to unmute you here. Okay, go ahead, guest 35. Is that me? That's you. Thank you. Appreciate it. I thought I signed in. Um, real quickly, I just wanted to share with you all, in listening to your your IRS presentation, I will say this is my first time on your call, so thank you for taking me. Um, back on May 16, 2013, although they're saying now it was the 17th, I watched on national TV the IRS executive director, Stephen Miller, testified under oath. This was during the Lois Lerner scandal when everybody kept coming on pleading the fifth. So I turned my TV off a couple weeks and I flipped it on one day and realized that it was still the hearings. It was the Ways and Means Committee hearing with regards to this scandal. And this gentleman had his hand on the Bible, swearing under oath, and I went to shut it off, and divine intervention kept it on. For two minutes and 32 seconds, Executive Director, IRS Executive Director Stephen Miller testified to the Ways and Means Committee. Trey Gowdy had just turned the chair over to Congressman Xavier Basira. I didn't hear the question, but I know what it was because the answer was Executive Director, IRS Executive Director Stephen Miller. 
That was his identity and his position. The next question I didn't hear, but the answer was taxes are voluntary. Congressman Bazira bounced back into his chair, threw his arms up in the air and out, and said, well, finally, someone admits it. For the next 10 months, that was in the search engines. They since have taken off that clip that I watched, but there is still testimony. I still didn't believe it. I thought there's, they, they have to have found a way to be deceptive. So I pursued former IRS agents. I didn't get hold of Joe Bannister, but I did get hold of Sherry Jackson. And she had an interesting story to tell me that she has her master's degree. She has her, her CPA. She was pretty high-ranking with the IRS and persecuting the daylights out of people. Yes. A radio station threw out a challenge. Anyone who can produce a ratified tax law will be handed $50,000, no questions asked. I remember when that took place. She took that challenge and figured, this is what she told me, because I did reach her. She said, I figured it was the easiest 50000 I'd ever make. And she searched, and she looked, and she looked, and no tax law exists. She's written a book, and she's traveling the country teaching exactly what has transpired. But she was put into prison under the Patriot Act prior to her teaching. So I haven't done any since 2013. The IRS did send a letter. We were involved because we've been caught up in the the mortgage fraud with the bankers. And that I have directly from an, an FBI agent. The banks hired several companies to falsify the documents. Now, this is what the FBI uncovered. And this is why the bankers are now doing settlements. The IRS, uh, not the IRS, um, the bankers hired several companies to falsify the documents, fraudulently foreclose on people, take them into sheriff sale, form their own LLC so they could be the collection agency. And the people who have done that to us, beginning 2012, we're still in our home. We never defaulted. We hired a lawyer to modify our mortgage. J.P. Morgan decided that they wanted our property. But I kept one step ahead of them, I guess, uh, although they're extorting an unbelievable money from us right now. Um, but th- this is all the fraud that is going on. Uh, the IRS, I mean, the, the, the FBI absolutely uncovered and exposed that. And the one agent that I spoke with that I know personally that was his assignment from 2005 until he retired in 2010. So I don't really know how to get that evidence from the FBI. Um, I also don't know how to get evidence from the IRS. But when because of this, we ended up, they didn't put us up on foreclosure private uh, sheriff sale they put us up on foreclosure private sale. In fact, I spoke with the Attorney General's office 
the people who were the, the law firm doing that to people in Jersey and Pennsylvania wreaking havoc all over is feeling and hailing it. And they're just falsifying everything. And this is what they've been hired to do. Well, this is a dilemma that is occurring in the states. Uh, this is a symbol of a country that's at its end stage uh, collapse, if you will. In fact, if I ask you who was the last Roman emperor of, of the Roman Empire, most people would never realize it or know who it is. And it was Emperor Valens. And he presided over the end of the Roman Empire. It had really already crumbled by that time. And so this, unfortunately, is what I'm perceiving. Uh, and this is one of the many, many reasons that I chose to leave the U.S., uh, geographically speaking, uh, many years ago, about 15-plus years ago, because I felt that the world is a big place and I need to be which is a lot more reasonable and tolerant of people and respect people a lot better. I'm basically one who you could call as a professional. Is a professional, I'm sorry, what? As a professional traveler or perpetual traveler, whatever you want to call it. But the main thing is that you mentioned the video with Stephen Miller. We That's have it correct. On, we have it on our website under our resource center, videos, because knowledge is power. It's our very first one, and it is two minutes and 32 seconds now. We also have a document by Dwight Avis, who was the head of the Bureau of ATF and IRS when it was one agency. And after the end of this IRS investigation, they segregated ATF away from IRS. And so as a result, uh, the post date is 20 March 2013. Uh, yeah, 2013. So it's about the third or fourth one down on our list. So you can look at that testimony before the House Ways and Means Committee back in 1953. Now, the law that you mentioned that Sherry Peel addressed, I can tell you that the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment is the proof that the law does exist because it was behind the structure of the 16th Amendment, meaning that it was only applicable for one jurisdiction. So from the context of a statutory sense, the law does exist, but it's only for the federal zone. It, the 16th Amendment does not apply to the Constitutional Republic. And correct. That's, okay, I was going to say, so, am I correct that that's the federal employees? It's federal employees, but it also includes that list of seven different taxpayers that I gave you earlier. So if you look at those group of people, they're, they're classified as U.S. taxpayers, and they're structured under the jurisdiction of the excuse me, of the federal zone, which is a territorial jurisdiction, it is not analogous to the constitutional republic, which is separate and distinct. So it's very important when you delineate which jurisdiction you're referring to, you must be very precise in pinpointing which one you're talking. And I think Sherry intended to do it with the constitutional republic, but the reality is it is law within the federal zone. Uh, I, I think the law was written, but if I understood her correctly, she said it was not ratified. Well, it really doesn't matter if the 16th Amendment was ratified. I know Bill Benson up in Illinois and a bunch of other good people, and I take my hat off to these people. Uh, I stand on the shoulders of others. That's why I'm looking at it from the perspective I have, because I've learned how not to make mistakes. And, and listen, in life... If we make mistakes, we need to learn from them. 
and I have made my fair share, okay? I'm not immune from that syndrome. But the reality is if you can learn from the mistakes about what not to do, you're far better off by not repeating it and expecting a different outcome. So this is what I did. Is I've, because I'm a pragmatist, I find that this has been the key that's helped me to unlock these doors for the revocation of election and dealing with the tax court and other issues like that. But uh, I just I know you're suffering with this uh, insult that they're putting and my heart goes out to you, and I wish there was something I could offer you, uh, but it's beyond the scope of what we do in our practice. Oh, oh I understand. Listen, I, I, I wasn't asking you guys to do anything. I truly got on to share the information huh, okay. because this is, this is all just being so suppressed as everything else is. Now, when we filed for bankruptcy, they had put our house up on foreclosure private sale, and my husband caught it. And I called J.P. Morgan and said, you people think you're slick. You're not getting my house. And we did have to hire an attorney. I wanted the alleged default judgment to satisfy it. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He convinced my husband he had to file for bankruptcy. And my husband wouldn't listen to me. So I'm in a house where they still don't believe. I, I have a lot of challenges just in my own home. So we ended up hiring an attorney well, the attorney found out that we could satisfy the alleged default. So he didn't do it. He turned us over to his partner. Mm-hmm. And the partner pulled a fast one and only included my husband. The IRS in the interim assigned someone because we were now we now filed for bankruptcy and we hadn't we I actually had submitted the, the taxes but they are taxed because I didn't know about it yet. This was before they no, I actually did know, but we were being pressed, and they were just renegade, as everybody is. So we went and submitted it because we got a refund, and the IRS called me. They assigned an agent to pursue us, and I actually challenged her and told her I had just watched this with Stephen Miller. Taxes are voluntary. I don't know what you people think you're doing. Never heard from her again. The IRS sent my husband just to him, and he and I are 30-plus years that we filed jointly. They sent him, I think, last year that he didn't file his 1040 for 2014, and we never heard anything afterwards. But I have a, a Form 56 to go ahead and file and a 4490 when we do hear something from them. Okay, well, see, what you're doing is you're staying within the tax system when you do that. And what we're advocating is is that you may have residual issues for prior years, but if you take the proactive position of leaving the U.S. Tax Club, which the U.S. Congress has provided you under 6013G4A, you can terminate that voluntary election that you alluded to, and you can have a permanent lifetime benefit of no further engagement, no further nexus, no further liability for filing or paying the federal income tax. Okay, well, now we're on Social Security. Will that be affected? Uh, I'm sorry, you said what? We're on Social Security. No, no, no. Social Security is totally different. Area, I know that's our money, <laughs> but tell them no, that. It's, it's not. If you look at Fleming versus Nestor, and U.S. Railroad Retirement Board versus Fritz, you will find that it is basically 
tax franchise scheme. Congress can amend, repeal, or revoke the Social Security Act. So if things get really tight and if they forecast for an economic depression that a lot of people that are engaged in economic forecasting, and I also trade the foreign exchange markets here in France uh, on Forex, uh, there's a lot of people talking about the collapse and if it does happen, it will be a tsunami event. And this is my personal opinion, okay? I'm not saying... Mm-hmm. Yep, no, I'm on board with you, Mom. But the reality is if it happens, it's going to be far worse than happened in the 1930s. Correct. And I'm just saying get your money out of the banks, and I'm forecasting, and again, I can have egg on my face, but I say it just because if I'm wrong, and I would be happy to be wrong, it hasn't hurt anybody because all you're doing is taking your money out of the banks, putting it in a safe place. Because if you don't understand what happened in Greece, you should take a moment and try to learn that. Your banking systems are completely tied to the federal control yes. with FDIC, the FISA, mm-hmm. all the other things, the Bank Secrecy Act, and so forth. So the idea of leaving your money in an institution, any type of financial institution, is not a good idea. And I think that you're going to see eventually, probably between first quarter 2017 to first quarter 2018, that's the target window that I see for the collapse of the U.S. dollar, the collapse mm-hmm. of the No matter what Trump does, and I hope that I'm wrong, believe me, I truly hope I am wrong, but he's going to be labeled with the new Herbert Hoover of America because he can't stop this event. You can't keep spending QE infinity printing paper money that's just ink on paper. It has nothing of value to support it, no gold, no silver, nothing that puts a throttle on government spending. So they're out of control. The debt's so massive, I don't know how you can outcome it. Because what they're reporting to you, if you look at this and really delve into it, and I'm not going to go into that tonight, but they're claiming it's somewhere around $20 trillion. Oh, yeah. and I, I've seen that it's higher than that. It's closer, it's closer to $200 trillion. Mm-hmm. I think I saw $300 trillion. Yeah, well, it's closer to 200 is where it's at right now. So okay. Whether it's okay. Uh, we, we have another caller here. Okay. Let's go. Well, thank you very much. And can I ask you before I hang up, could you please give me that website again? Sure. It's Weiss, W-E-I-S-S, Paris. W-E-I-F-F-Paris.com, yes. Thank you so very, very much. Nice chatting. Thank you. God bless, and you all have a happy, healthy, and prosperous New Year. Thanks for taking my call. Bye now. You're welcome. Okay. um, Let me scan up here at the top of the board. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question for uh, Adele, am I pronouncing that right? That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> You're yeah. doing it right. Uh, push your star eight, and I will bring you on the call. Okay, I'm going to unmute Pave Bart is what it says. So, Pay Bart, you're on the call. What is your question? What's the definition of income? Is it uh, wages 
pay and wages, or is it profit and gain from wages and payment? Well, there were a technical question inside the IRC statutes, and uh, you can look at that from that perspective if you want to. The, the whole nature of this process that we're talking about tonight is to say, get yourself out of dealing with statutory law. Leave it behind. The Congress gave you the option to do that. And you can delve into these ish, subset of issues. You can go five miles deep in them if you want to, and there are plenty of good resource people out there that have done that. They've that many years and not the solution, I can tell you, because you need to think again clearly that getting out of that nexus with the government, the moment you start quoting definitions in the IRC as far as delving into it, you're remaining inside the quagmire that they want you to remain in. And our goal is to show you a path. <clears throat> right, right. I understand that. I'm retired military, so is my military retired? Is it income? Okay, you're saying taxable income. Right. All right. All right. Yeah, is there other kind of income? If you're deriving money from the federal government, payment for services, and even retirement, at a certain level, it's like Social Security. You're getting money at a certain level. You you have to pay tax. I think it's twenty five thousand okay. is the minimum. Uh, I don't keep up with all that. Right. So, can I still do the revocation of election then? You would not. Will it have any effect? That's correct. In your particular situation, it would not. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Boy, look at all them bats out there. I know. I know. I know. Sad. Um, okay, uh, let's see here. Let me get this done here a second. Um, Okay, push your star eight, people, if you want to come on the call, make a statement, have a question. Uh, let me, Adele, let me ask you this question, because it came up uh, as an idea. Is, let's say that I have been paying taxes. Okay. And I want to play in the D.C. tax court as a plaintiff and or a private attorney general uh, under a class action to represent the people and put the commissioner and the treasury, et cetera, down as defendants. So if I pull myself in that jurisdiction, do you think that D.C. tax court would consider a pleading as such? No, sir. And the reason being is that you said you filed a return. We don't get involved. We do not interfere. We do not in any way, shape, or form conflict with those who are statutory U.S. taxpayers. 
those people need to go to the IRS and get their information. Now, if you go into a court and you challenge them on their own process, they're saying, well, you've already submitted to our jurisdiction. You've well acknowledged that you are a U.S. taxpayer. All you are is a tax protester, a tax cheat, a tax evader, and any other descriptive adjective they can come up with. Okay? You're going to have yourself nailed to the cross. And I hate to say it that bluntly, but that's reality. Right. Well, yeah, well, I, I say that in a way that because, the you know, the listeners on the call tonight, the ones that's going to listen to the recording probably tomorrow or the next day, uh, you know, we bring up these ideas sometimes and we have to stop and think real hard and go back and think real hard again. Uh, you know, do we really want to take that route? But you're saying now, have you have you ever had the IRS uh, come back after one of your clients did that process? The ROEs, uh, what's the other one? Uh, yeah. Uh, have you ever had the IRS, after someone's completed that process, come back and still harass that person? The answer that I can give you in the short is absolutely not. Uh, and if you understand the fact that what we're doing is saying that, first of all, the U.S. Congress wrote the statutory laws. All right, this is a statutory law, 6013 G4A, termination of election. They don't tell you how to accomplish it but they tell you you can do it. We know both answers, all right, and we've been very successful. We have an 11-page document that addresses every aspect from every level of government addressing the income tax question. So they don't have any authority to challenge their own. What are they going to say? Congress didn't know what it was doing? So Congress basically gave 100% ironclad promise that American nationals can terminate their election. They can leave the U.S. Tax Club. This is not me saying it. It is the U.S. Congress that says it. At 6013G4A. And then at 6013G6, they said it's a one-time election. Basically, once you terminate that election, you can't re-enter the U.S. Tax Club. It's a wonderful lifetime benefit, and nobody's had any problems with that. Now, the IRS may send a letter 3175C if you don't file it correctly, if you don't have proof of delivery, as we state in our instructions, there's a lot of details that I'm not going into tonight on the instruction side. But if all of those structures that we give you, you have ironclad proof the moment that it hits the door at mm -hmm. certain, two certain IRS locations, then it's immediately in effect. Okay, there's a question on the board here. If you have uh, guest 46, if you have a question, push your star eight, I'll bring you in the call. J-Man 49, his question on the board is, can you use election or revocation where it concerns Social Security taxes and Medicare taxes? Uh, no, sir. This only applies, if you understand, to the federal income tax. And that's clearly stated in 6013G and 6013H. 
and that that's why I mentioned the re regulation 26 CFR 1.871-1A. It only addresses federal income tax. Nothing with Social Security or any of the others. Okay, Central Indiana, you're on the call. Hey, how you doing? Hi. Got a couple. Got a couple of questions. Um, one, how long does the process take once you file the paperwork? And two, can you do it in the middle of tax court? If you can just say, if you decide, well, I'm done with this game, I'm going to file this revocation of election, and you file it. Okay. All right, good, qu good question. Uh, let's take the first one as far as when does it go into effect. If you became an, an ROE client, of course, we have to have from you your eight strict criteria so that we do not interfere inappropriately with any people that are legal U.S. taxpayers. You're telling us that you are an American national, that you are not subject to their jurisdiction, and a few other things that we offered uh, requests for information on. Now, once you do that, it goes into effect within, uh, let's say, once you get the document, it takes time for you to put it in an envelope, or actually to get it notarized, I should say, first, and we request that you make four copies so that you send one copy to one IRS second one to another, you get proof of delivery, and if you can do it registered mail, you don't mind spending the extra money, that's an even better process because it, you know it gets to the right party immediately. But either way, um, you can do it by certified. Once it arrives at the IRS location, both of them, then it's in effect. Now, as far as the other question you were mentioning about tax court, if you're dealing with tax court, you're probably dealing with a current issue, such as maybe 2015, 2012, or years past. Is that yeah, correct? 20, 2012, 20, uh, 2012, 2013. Okay. Once you go to our website at com, you will see very clearly that the revocation of election only starts the year in which you actively initiate the revocation of election. It does not work retroactively. In other words, it cannot reach back to 2012 and cover you. Now, if you have issues before the tax, uh, if you're not addressing them the right way, uh, it can lead to harm. Uh, a good example of this, and again, I live in a glass house, so I don't throw stones at anybody else, because my goal is to say everybody is participating in trying to find solutions, because this is not a casual subject. But the, the key is, is that a guy named Joe Bannister Court, uh, back in California, I guess it was, then he went to tax court and, get, and basically got his head handed to him uh, on a silver platter. He filed an amended petition and paid the filing fee, and he submitted to the jurisdiction of the tax court by doing those two simple things. And if you have done the same thing, I can promise you what the outcome is going to be. And I, I know this sounds blunt, and I have to apologize. I don't mean to sound harsh. But I'm just telling you the real facts, because this court is not your friend. This court is there to serve and treat you as if you're property under the dominion and control of the national government as a U.S. taxpayer. And they have every perfect right to do that as long as you made that election. Now, once you terminate that election, they don't have any nexus with you ever again, starting with that year that you terminate the election. 
but in your particular case with the tax court, um, I don't know what you've done. If you did, you file an amended petition and pay the filing fee. I filed filed a I paid the filing fee, and I filed in as a petitioner for yeah. redetermination. Yeah. See, by doing that, you have sub silentio. See, they didn't tell you, and they never will tell you, that by doing those two simple things, that you are acquiescing, you are submitting to their jurisdiction. And once you have done that, there's only one. They win, you lose. We do it differently. We have found a way to achieve this. We have probably, and I haven't looked at the exact number, but it's somewhere approaching around the 2,000 number of cases with the U.S. tax court, and we've won every single time. Oh, you've I'm, been in tax court, too? We only, had two, we only had two clients that didn't get the outcome, which is a court order of dismissal for lack of jurisdiction, and they made mistakes on their own side, not us. Okay. Right. But you exclude the What mistakes. is the determination of the tax court? When, what is the final determination you get from them when you go in your way? Well, for example, if the IRS is coming at you with a notice of intent to levy or notice of deficiency, okay, mm -hmm. 3219 letter or an LT11 or something like that, mm -hmm. then what you need to do is you need to present to the tax court your documentation outlining the fact that you're not, number one, you don't file the amended petition, you don't file the fee that they request because, see, that is their sub silentio effort under silence to get you to submit to their jurisdiction. We don't do that. We define the term petitioner, and the court is having a lot of fun trying to figure out how to defeat us, and so far they are not able to do it. I knew we were going to win every single time after the first case. Now, we've had different issues addressed by IRS attorneys out of Washington that supported the tax court, and they used sites from tax court law, and those sites only apply to people that are subject to the jurisdiction. So again, we're not against the government. We're not against the government applying their laws where they are applicable toward those who are their property, those who are U.S. taxpayers. It is for American nationals who have never been imposed with a liability. They inadvertently made a voluntary election. They can leave the U.S. tax club courtesy of the exit door created by the U.S. Congress, and they must be able to do this in the first place because of the 13th Amendment, which outlaws slavery and involuntary indentured servitude. Okay, that's the reason Congress put that in there. And so they know what they're doing, and they don't want to ever give you the keys to the door. But the tax court has no choice but to issue a court order of dismissal for lack of jurisdiction. And if you go to Black's Law Dictionary and look up dismissal, lack of jurisdiction, jurisdiction, and some other terms like that, you're going to see very clearly they're without authority. Even rules of civil procedure discuss the issue of jurisdiction, meaning that if they can't provide the fact that you are submitted to that jurisdiction of that court, there's no option but to dismiss the case that was created by the IRS or that lien or levy action that they're incurring. Mm -hmm. and we have most of our motions are about forty-two pages long. Well, why couldn't you? Mine was four hundred pages, by the way. But uh, why couldn't you um, file the revocation of election today? And I mean, if somebody filed it today, 
hadn't gone into tax court but was within the 90-day window, could he file your paperwork into tax court for those two years previous, and would your method methodology there, uh, would it be successful? Well, or again, is it well, only going to be successful because the revocation of election has been done, uh, would be have to be done prior to the year that they're, they're bringing you in for? In other words, what I'm saying is if someone was to do a revocation of election and complete it tomorrow, and then they were within the 90 days, so they you would file in the tax court for 2011 or 2012 13 would it be effective for 2012 and 13 could you get the same outcome you would not use the revocation of election for that we have a different okay. process for those american oh. acts or those particular issues or prior mm-hmm. years before the revocation of election the the, the government knows what they have done they mm-hmm. understand it don't let anyone doubt that fact yeah, I know they know. Yeah, they know, and yeah. they're not. They need the money. <laughs> but the thing is, is that there's enough Americans, and you know, lead poisoning is not something I am very fond of, and I don't advocate that type of a lifestyle. But right. there's enough people that would get pretty irate. Is my imagination? Let's me go with this discussion, and this is only my opinion, which I again I am not a, a right. an advocate of doing such, but. I can imagine what they would be looking for is a shelter to hide under, you know, with people coming at them with all kinds of yeah. issues, you know, that have well, the other, the other thing is how do, you, how do you elect to do something that's never presented completely to you for your decision? So how, do you, how, how, how does a person accidentally volunteer? I mean, that's not even legal. Well, the thing is, is that most of the – when you're talking about the – you're absolutely correct because if you look at the Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust decision, it that the income tax is a direct tax and only applicable if they, the government uses the rule of apportionment based on the census and enumeration. Well, guess what? If you read the 16th Amendment wording, no matter whether it was ratified or not, it doesn't matter because it's only applicable to that jurisdiction. It would matter if it were not ratified if it were being applied to the constitutional republic. But it was yeah. never intended that way because the government cannot violate the decision of the Supreme Court, which is the law of the land. So that's why they have quietly turned this elephant, if you will, into something for them to benefit from. It's a, it's a wonderful game that they created, and they made the impression that you had to file and pay. Now, if you look back, I think it was World War II with the Victory Tax Act. Oh, yeah, uh, basically, right. that's where most Americans first really started paying the federal income tax. And post-World yeah, right. War II, they just kept filing and paying. And when right. you file and pay, that is a voluntary election. It is mm-hmm. under silence all the time, all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's self-renewing unless you terminate the election. But see, most Americans were not aware of where to find the keys for the exit door, yeah. and then what is the process to use those keys to actually leave the system? Mm-hmm. And I thank God every day I figured that one out. Well, there's one other question, and that is if you're in tax court as a petitioner, you're the plaintiff, and to get a dismissal normally would be not to your benefit. See, I told you this is a paradigm shift at the very beginning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
what you what you're saying in normal situation is absolutely correct without a shadow of a doubt. However, if you understand the fact that they have found a fraud, and a fraud imposes no duty, imposes no obligation. And you can look up this definition of fraud in Black's Law Dictionary to see all the other intricacies of that word. So the reality is, and I think it's uh, 18 U.S.C. 1759, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, late at night, but right. you know, uh, a supporting mechanism that allows the government to be uh, basically charged with illegal activities, uh, uh, forced labor is the, the subject where they're basically trying to use their own statutes to force you into doing that which is not permissible. So the nature of the federal income tax is just that. It applies to one jurisdiction because of the wording of the 16th Amendment, because of the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment written by Otis Taft in 1909, backed on on top of all of this is the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So if you understand that, this is why, because again, of Article One, Section Two, and Section Nine, the government cannot impose a federal income tax upon American nationals, those who were born in the constitutional republic or naturalized there. But again, right. it, and all this is in our resource center, and we have YouTube videos, and we try mm-hmm. to really bring this out in bold relief. And so I would urge you to consider looking at our videos and going to our website and uh, see what information's there, because we really encourage education, because you should not take my word for anything. You don't know me. You've never seen me. You can't really say the guy's really legit or not. But what you can do is look at what the law says. See, I'm insignificant. It is what does the structure say that the federal government hangs their hats on? It's the law. And they are excellent wordsmiths. But once you learn how to legalese, you can then use that tool against them. And there's enough ammunition there to basically shut them down. Well, there's well, enough. That, there's that, a, I, I put out on a call here a while back, uh, coming from the Harold Stanley case again, about the Winston Trout acceptance for value process. And I challenged everybody, where's the ink on white paper? Show us. Show us, because if it works, then why not share it with the people? You know, are we going to play Tommy Cryer, uh, attorney, and die with all of his uh, documentation? Yeah, I know what you mean. You know? Anyway, we got some more questions here. We got yep. some more callers. Let's move on here. You got it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let me see here. Which one is it? Okay. Uh, guest forty six. You have your hand up again. I think. Hold on a minute. Okay, you're on the call. Go ahead. Yes, you can hear me now. Yes. Uh, well, thank you for the information, Adele. Did I say that correctly, Adele? Are yeah. you there? Yeah. Um, okay, the question is, um, to go through your process to uh, uh, the revocation of elections, you said an American national, would that be uh, 
one of the uh, state citizens. I mean, uh, we have nation states. Would you have a, a domicile uh, in the state? Because uh, don't we have a residence as a U.S. citizen and not a domicile? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, there's a couple of websites that go into this in detail, uh, famguardian.org and sedm.org, but this mm -hmm. is a recent website. Uh, they go about what I call five miles deep in the subjects, but I'm more of a pragmatist. I look to say I don't need a man 1,500 pages to read because I'll forget what Page 872, you know, on page 14. Uh, so it's one in which we try to make it a boilerplate so that you can keep it down to the lowest common denominator. Uh, so that's the intent of what we're trying to do with our information. I don't know if I answered your question. Rephrase uh, it. Yes. Yes. Uh, and you said this in the federal territory that you would be a taxpayer under. That's not under the Constitution, basically, and the Constitution authorizes only gold and silver as money, which uh, the IRS and the Federal Reserve use a private script, a private note. Is that correct? Well, yes, the Constitution says that. And But again, what you have to keep in mind constantly is jurisdiction. So once your questions, you must say, am I addressing the Constitutional Republic? called the United States, that's one jurisdiction. The other is the federal zone, a territorial <laughs> jurisdiction. And so all of the other statutes and regulations that the IRS and the government uses are applicable within that jurisdiction. Most of them, most of the laws that Congress passes, such as the Military Commission Act, the Patriot Act, if you look for the publication in the Federal Register to meet the litmus test of the Constitution, they're not in there. They don't go Zone. All right, and I wrote Michael L. White, who was the who was working in the office of the Federal Register, an agency, a sub-agency of the National Archives, and I asked him, "Can you give me the actual promulgation in the Federal Register, volume, date, and page number of the Patriot Act, for example?" And he sent me the Patriot Act. He got his knuckles wrapped, and we've got one of his letters on this, the second exhibit where he wrote a response to an American national in May of 1994 addressing the IRC and the liens, levies, enforcement issues. And he basically said, our records indicate the IRS is not incorporated by reference in the Federal Register requirement to make an income tax return, period. Now, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, but it's there, you can read it, and it's very clear of what's going on. There's a lot of issues that go into this. It is not an easy, casual subject. Well, you, you, yeah, right. And you was talking, uh, Adele, earlier about, you know, wording. We we have played with words. Uh, Rod gets into that sometimes. And, uh, you know, it's like, okay, we hear the word or paraphrase, or whatever, we hear IRS. IRS. When we hear that, we think of taxes or money or something. And now, after the first year, uh, we're going to start seeing ads on TV 
uh, we'll call this number, the, the H&R Block, and we're going to help you fix your IRS taxes. Well, what people don't understand is like me. I quit filing. I don't sign anything anymore, and I don't have to. It's all voluntary. So the IRS definition stands for internal. It doesn't say ERS, external, or XRS. IRS is for the people that work internally in that system. The federal zone. 10 miles square. Yeah, that's right. The 10 miles square. That's it. You got it right. High five. Thank you. Okay. Okay, we got one more caller here, and we're going to close the call. It's been two hours. Louisiana, I'm going to bring you in. You're unmuted. Ah, uh, yes. Hello? Hello? Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, Mr. Weiss? Yes. Um, I've got a really, really simple question. I've been listening to the call, and I'm going to be on your website. i got one simple question. Would it make sense to file a W-8, W-A-B-N, if we're still doing a W-2, and then do your process? just to get our old taxes back and then be without it out of the system from then on? <clears throat> That's a good question. First of all, you're dealing with a private sector employer? Of course. Okay, I'm just making sure. I'm not assuming anything because I don't... Yes, 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 no problem. ...the questions fully. We find that you can use the W-8BN if you prefer, but there is one that uh, for your employer's benefit that helps you a little bit better, and it's Form 8233. And if you go to our web under the Resource Center, we have that listed. And we've basically got some details already put into that document. So you recommend... I'm sorry? So you recommend SIN certified and the notarial process, the three-step process to get things done quicker? Well, if you're doing the revocation of election, uh, that's different than doing these forms, W-A-B-E-N or the... Yeah, yes, yeah, sir. I, I'm I'm comparing the the future, future still with employment, your process compared to the the old form to just, just to get back the little change on the back end that you can go back three years prior. And as far as to get out of the system completely for the future, the... The election, you know what I mean? Well, the, again, the revocation of election starts. The revocation, I'm sorry. As you complete it, and it moves forward in time. It does not move backwards. So, Of course, you, yes. Sir. But if you if you want money back or something like that, if that's part of your question, uh, from what you've already gifted to the government, the only way you can get any of it back with hopes of getting any of it back is to stay within the system. But otherwise, you have to just realize that you have donated your assets by a voluntary choice because they tell you in that regulation, 26 CFR 1.871-1A, that you may elect. May is a permissive word. It is not a 
key to the whole thing. That's why they claim it's voluntary. You can actually give your money to them and sign up for the comedy, the burden of all these tax laws and everything on your back, or you can walk away from it. Makes perfect sense. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Good question. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to close the call now. Uh, any Rod, are you still on there? You got any last statements you want to make? I know your gun case out of D.C. is coming up. Uh, yes, I just got uh, a brief from the mixed carry attorneys. I will get it sent out to Harvey for him to get it posted. But they are coming back in, and they are slamming the United States Attorney's Office again on their, you know, on what they're doing. So, ladies and gentlemen, like I said, with with what Odell's doing, with what he's sitting here telling you, with what we're doing here, they're a little bit of a different technique, but they are coming back in and we're using congressional records. That is the foundation of so much of our argument is what Congress has set back and said. What Congress has set back and, and made rulings on. And the fact that we could walk in and show the federal statutes were never passed by both houses. The congressional records that goes back and explains it. The congressional records from the Federal Registry to the National Industrial Recovery Act clearly goes back and shows that the United States Code are strictly administrative. It is not for John Q. Public. It is theirs. And that's what the IRS is. It is their income. It is their setup because they are the ones that was given the jobs by the federal government, and there has to be accountability on their income because they are being paid by the federal system, which comes from us. But the other side of this fence, ladies and gentlemen, falls back under Title 18, United States Code, Section 8, Obligation of the United States. The Federal Reserve note, the Federal Reserve banking note, has no tie to us whatsoever. It is strictly an obligation of the United States. Congress has said it. It's in their statutes at large. It's in their USC codes. The arguments here, ladies and gentlemen, are endless on how we can come back and hammer these suckers. But it's what you're willing to do. It is your research. How much effort are you going to put into this? That's what counts, and that's the issue here. So, go, Carl, go ahead and with whatever you want to go do to close this thing out. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Adele, for coming on. I'm sure we'll talk further in the coming uh, uh, days. And so you want to give your website and contact out again? Certainly, and I appreciate this opportunity tonight to share with your audience, and I appreciate the honor deeply uh, because we're serving American nationals. Our website is Weiss, W-E-I-S-S, Paris.com. WeissParis.com, and at the top of that webpage, you can see our email address, bilateral at gmx.com. And with that, I again thank you for your courtesy and this opportunity to share this information, and I applaud the efforts that both of you are doing 
in the area of litigation. It's uh, I tip my hat to you. That's mm-hmm. what it. Yeah. Well, we, you know, there's. Oh God, there's. Uh, I could spend another hour on that. You know, we've we've had the Tim Turners. Uh, there again, people. If anybody listens to this call and you have ink on white paper proving that the acceptance for value process works, then please get a hold of me and and forward that information because that birth certificate thing has been going around for 20 years that I've been in this uh, hoopla. And, you know, I'd just like to see how Winston Shroud gets out of that, but maybe he's got a rabbit in the hat. I don't know. But that's where a lot of past people have gotten convicted for using that acceptance for value through the IRS tax uh, issue. But anyway, we'll keep prosecuting. We'll keep filing. And yeah, good job, Adele. We'll talk further. Actually, I've been thinking about getting me and Rod and uh, you and Bob on the same conference call here in the future on this Harold Stanley case and see if we can't put our heads together to get him. Uh, either through a habeas corpus or something to get him out of there. Uh, but anyway, we'll we'll discuss that privately. So, ladies and gentlemen, happy New Year! Uh, remember the Easter Bunny just around the corner, and we will sign off now. And, Rod, we will be posting an update call here in the near future. Stay tuned. Have a good evening. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good night.